Urbit is a completely new way of looking at computing. Every user gets a personal server, which runs your apps, wrangles your connected devices, and defines your secure identity. Your Urbit presents your whole digital life as a single web service. Urbit feels foreign and confusing for those of us coming from traditional web backgrounds. But that's because the normal paradigm is to iterate and paper over the problems of the current platform with new things built on top. Curtis Yarvin, the creator of Urbit, argues that the current model is too fundamentally broken for the iteration strategy to work. As he says, the internet is a client-server network has won. The internet as a peer-to-peer network has failed. This sounds like yet another quirky, overambitious developer side project, but Urbit has serious legs. The GitHub repo has had 51 committers over its four years of activity. Last year, a public crowd sale of Urbit address space raised more than $200,000. Peter Thiel was an early investor in the project perhaps partly due to the combination of persistence, technical skill, and unusual opinions of Curtis Yarvin. In this episode, Curtis and Galen Wolfpolly join me for a conversation about Urbit, its strange computing platform, and the contrarian philosophies that drive its creators. Curtis Yarvin and Galen Wolfpolly work on Urbit. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. A quote from the Urbit documentation. The internet as a client-server network has won. The internet as a peer-to-peer network has failed. What does that mean? Uh, That's a a good question and a great way to start. I mean, uh, you know, back when I was uh, learning to use the internet in the 80s, um, I think it was sort of everyone's impression that when we used the internet, we would have our own um, nodes that actually exchanged, you know, IP packets. And uh, that didn't exactly happen. Uh, instead, what happened is, you know, a good way to say this sort of from the, uh, the 80s perspective is imagine, you know, you uh, you went to sleep in uh, 1988 and did your uh, Rip Van Winkle act and woke up today. How would I explain the world to you? And well, what I could say is, OK, we have this new kind of modem. It's called the Internet. Um, it doesn't go dee doo dee doo dee doo dee doo dee doo. Um, you can connect to many um, um, online services at the same time. There's a standard client for all online services. Um, and um, CompuServe is now called uh, Facebook. Um, and nothing else has changed. Um, and so, really, it's like we sort of, uh, you know, from the perspective of being someone from that that Stone Age, it sort of felt like there was this revolution that was going to happen, and it kind of started to happen, and some amazing things happened, and then we ended up with sort of boring old feudalism again. Um, and so, really, the kind of the um, fundamental technical motivation comes from how did that, what caused that to happen, and how can we basically try again and make sure it doesn't happen. When I started to look into Urbit. I slowly realized that this is a giant project, and it's not just a vaporware giant project. It's a giant project with a lot of work behind it, a lot of man hours at this point. And so it got me really taking it seriously, and I was like, so what What point is this project trying to make? And I think I started to get it when I read... So the idea of a peer-to-peer network that you want is point-to-point communication between peers, whereas today we have all of our communication, but if I want to communicate with your entity, I need to go through the broker of Facebook, for example, and in your ideal, 
the peer-to-peer network would allow for more direct communication between each other. Is that accurate? That is accurate. So, I mean, the thing is, you know, an example of kind of a relic of the old days that's kind of survived into the new world is email, right? And um, email is still, you know, sort of barely a peer-to-peer network, as in you can run your own email server. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think many people recommend it. And, um, you know, in practice, uh, if you're running your own email server, Gmail is going to be pretty suspicious of you. Um, And, um, you know, in practice, it makes a lot more sense just to sort of forget about this peer-to-peer thing and just, you know, sign up with a big G. Um, and, um, and, and, one way to sort of look at that, which is interesting, is to say, well, you know, we had this service, which was email, which was totally peer to peer. And then the Internet kind of, uh, you know, exploded and we sort of kept email. Email kind of got grandfathered into the new world as a as a protocol that's still vestigially peer to peer because it already existed. But you can't create a new open protocol like email today. And, you know, you see the various attempts to um standardized kind of, you know, instant messaging and presence, uh, as we used to call it back in the late 90s. And um, they totally, uh, you know, failed. Like you couldn't, you know, everyone's and occasionally one of these big servers will kind of try to open federation of their instant messaging. Um, Nothing but spam will come through. They're like, ah, we tried, you know, looks like the internet did fail after all. And, uh, you know, in a way, it's this sort of dystopian, you know, vision. I mean, I remember, uh, I think it was back in, um, must have been 1998, I was in an ITF, uh, you know, working group on um, instant messaging and presence. And, you know, all these people had, you know, they were like XMPP, which was Jabber then, was just starting to become standardized. People are like, you know, people saw the internet, you know, taking over the world back then, obviously. And they assumed that since the internet would take over the world, the ITF would take over the world. And therefore, in this little room, people would define what protocol was used for peer-to-peer instant messaging. And if you could go back in time and tell those people, well, actually, there won't be a protocol. There will just be one monopoly server, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, being imagined in the head of a 14-year-old right now. Um, I, I think that people would be very, um, you know, disappointed. And so the critical question in my mind is, you know, it's like I think a lot of people look at this um, sort of failure of the Internet to become um, what it was supposed to be. And for some reason, they sort of want to try the same thing over again or they attribute it to they think of it as a coincidence or maybe it was done by Russian hackers or something. Um, and, you know, I think that those of us who sort of grew up believing in Unix and the Internet basically need to take a hard look at this technology base and say, why didn't this work out the way we wanted it to? Was it just a coincidence or was it basically the fact that these essentially 70s technologies of Unix and the Internet, you know, sort of scaled in theory to this global peer to peer network, but didn't actually scale in practice. And so, you know, the um, um, the quest. So, you know, that involves basically like looking at a fundamental level of saying, well, why can't you introduce a new federated protocol on the Internet today? Why can't people have their own servers on the Internet today? Right. And and, and just to simplify things for people who are still a little confused, the Urbit model would have everybody having a personal server. And in the current state of computing, what the personal server is embodied 
as is this combination of all the cloud services I use. It's got you know my Dropbox information, my Facebook data, my tweets, all of these different things that are federated out into a variety of services. These it compose the union. The union of these is what would be the personal server in the Urbit model. Talk, that's exactly right. Talk talk more about why that's important. Why is it problematic that all of this data is spread and federated out across all these different services? And why would it be advantageous to have an alternate model of the personal server? So, yeah, so I think about this. Um, so I've been reading this history of Bell Labs, uh, which I recommend to just about everybody. And I'm going to forget the title, but it's like the most recent one. Um, and so early on in the history of Bell Labs, uh, I've been reading about how like the phone system was completely um, fragmented, right? So people literally had to have separate phone lines to communicate with different people because there was no like universal standard for how people would send send voice, right? People, like different companies actually owned the wires. And when I was reading that, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I experienced today, right? Like if I want to send someone, I was just trying to set up a... Um, uh, I was trying to figure out how to message with a contractor, and it's like, oh, uh, my SMS isn't working, so can you, you know, can you talk to me over WhatsApp? And to me, that's like, it's so insane to me that these things, um, sort of, in general, what we think of as social networking, but I think, I think it's much broader than that. It's like what we think of as cloud computing, like hasn't been uh, sort of standardized into some kind of protocol that encompasses basically identity messaging computation and data storage, right? We all use these things, but our ability to use them is um, kind of moderated by these giant services that provide the interface that decide how we can use them. And so because that has to be like, that has to be done by a single centralized entity, it's very difficult to, um, to basically innovate on top of that, to innovate like at the actual user level, right? To provide new user experiences, you have to build, effectively build an entire company. Sure, so I mean, the user experience of using all these services of sort of switching between these services is kind of terrible because you have, and you know, one of the things about terrible user experiences is that basically people don't realize how terrible they are when they're in them. They only realize, you know, if, if you know, everyone is sort of used to the, the discomforts of their ordinary lives. And so it's like when you get outside those discomforts, you're like, ah, wow. That was really uncomfortable, but until that experience is there, you don't really experience it. And so, um, the things that fall out of this kind of bad user experience are, of course, you know, so you have these, uh, you know, 10 different accounts. So there's a sort of pain of kind of switching between each of them and, you know, basically being like, oh, is this here? Is this there? Do I use this? Do I use that? That's a sort of, you know, pretty trivial form of pain. Um, there's definitely the fact that when you use a special service, special purpose service, that service owns you and controls your data in a way. And that produces, um, you know, most people sort of think of those those bad effects and kind of in terms of, you know, privacy and the NSA and whatever. And there's, cer there's certainly truth to that. But it also produces this interesting effect where um, your, um, um, your, the service that shows you your, your UI is not working on behalf of you. It's basically a UI controlled by someone else. So in a world where like you run your own UI, it's sort of much harder to imagine that UI, for example, showing you ads because how, why would a UI that worked for you show you ads? Like what, why would, you know, it, wouldn't it just lie and say it showed you the ads? Um, so there's a sort of issue of control that is, um, 
kind of, you know, fundamental to the user experience. Um, and there's something else, which is that um, when we use all these different user interfaces, basically we have um, we have a real resistance to adding to that set. We're like, okay, here, these are the services that I know. Now I'm going to consider using this different service. I got to learn the UI. I got to, you know, have this experience, right? And it's like, yeah, do I want to put that work in? And, you know, what's, what's funny about that is that, um, it used to be somewhat harder to sort of um, explain this. And then this new uh, service in uh, China appeared in the last you know, really two or three years. Do you, know, do you know anything about WeChat? Do you know the... So, um, you know, WeChat has basically... I mean, they haven't actually given everyone their own general purpose computer, but they've sort of created a user experience which is much closer to the user experience of a personal server. So when you use WeChat to consume an online service, they've basically sort of, for a lot of things, uh, you know, for basically most standardized services, they've essentially taken this web model in which you go to a remote third-party origin server, download the UI, run the UI, um, and they've replaced that with APIs. So what that means in practice is, let's say you use WeChat to do your banking. Um, so if you bank on the web, you know, with, uh, you know, in the US, the way it works is you go to your bank's website, they hired a bunch of JavaScript jockeys to write a, a UI. Um, every bank in the US provides the same basic financial services, but every bank in the US has a bunch of JavaScript jockeys that run the UI. So you, you and then you as a user have to learn this new, new UI, um, which we think of as an easy task, but you know, those tasks add up. In China, when you're using WeChat, when you go in bank, basically your bank, your bank provides an API to WeChat and the UI is standardized. And so if you want to switch banks, you're just like, oh yeah, let me put in this different account number. And suddenly I'm banking with this different bank. You go to China and you, you know, there's a lot of places where you can order food in restaurants through WeChat. Again, same thing. If you're doing it, you know, using the web model, it's like, okay, I'm a restaurant. I want to let people order with their cell phones. Okay. I get to the restaurant. I have to create an account. I sign in, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, frequent, frequent restaurant eater. So-and-so then, you know, the restaurant hires a bunch of JavaScript jockeys to put their menu in JavaScript, you know, so then I'll, I'll order, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like, no one would do that. Right. In China, it's like, I want to sell food. Okay. I want to be a restaurant that sells food. Okay. Here, here's how I plug into the API and there's sort of one user experience and you just sort of replace the restaurant there. So the thing is that that's what's actually going on inside WeChat is is not, of course, that you have a general purpose computer that is yours in the cloud that is running an agent that basically um, orders food on your behalf. It's much cruder than that. Um, but when you see the user experience and you see how well the user experience works for people, you can basically say, okay, this is why we want to go away from this model where your, your life in the cloud is 10 different accounts and you want to move to this model where it's one thing. And, you know, it just seems to make a great deal of sense to combine that transition in a user experience with a technical transition where your life in the cloud is becoming a general purpose computer. To play the devil's advocate, I mean, with the current model, we have Dropbox and I pay, I pay Dropbox an amount of money every month to be my file storage uh, service of choice. And if they don't do that very well, I can easily migrate my stuff to some other service. So there are market forces that push Dropbox to be better. 
Uh, the same thing is, I mean, true for Facebook and Google. I'm giving Google and Facebook my data because I am expecting them to iterate their services at a fast, competitive rate. And so, in some sense, you are federating your you're federating the responsibilities of your computation to these different domain-specific corporations. And in some sense, if you know you believe in some efficient market system, then these these services are very competitive and they're going to improve over time. And they, there's they, nothing they are, wrong with it. And, and, and then so, so 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 certainly like there's there there are problems with the interfaces that can result because of that. And there would be some advantage to centralizing the interfaces. But then if you centralize the interface in an open source project, perhaps there's you know you don't get that competitive nature. So I don't know where, how, like how how would this? I don't know. Give me some. Give me some, more of a picture for how the Urbit system would evolve and and uh, maintain that quality of experience that we get out of this competitive nature. Well, the thing is, that, yeah, I mean, it's a general purpose computer, but that doesn't mean that uh, certainly not you, the user, or even the um, you know the OS vendor writes the applications, right? I mean, the thing is that um, you know because it's a um, like uh, just because it's 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 a sort of so there's there's sort of an interesting kind of contradiction in a way it's like this is certainly an open system that we're creating it's not um the sort of completely integrated closed thing where urbit does everything for you at the same time when we're introducing this new thing we have to provide a complete user experience we can't just sort of build the platform and then let the market um, do the rest of the work because the market doesn't exist yet. You have to bootstrap that. But um, it's certainly true that well, yeah. So wait. So one way to that's so one way to think about it is basically like, okay, sure. So there there are kind of this limited number of actors in this space already, and I would say, well, wait. What if you could just uh, what if you could just actually move your Facebook data, or let's say you could actually just move all your Reddit data. So it was really easy to just write a different interface to any one of these things, or even just an extension to one of them, in the in the way that we expected from like the sort of mid '90s PC era, right? So this was as if it were local data. I could just write another program that operated on stuff that was on my hard drive. So as a as a creative person, like as a developer, I mean that's basically kind of what excites me or what got me interested in Urbit. I think initially, right? Like that's an incredible possibility. That's actually what I want to be able to do. And so the fact is that that's of course not possible. And so that in a way, like the market forces sort of can't actually, un it's very difficult to unseat these incumbents because there's incredible, there's the, the level of lock-in is sort of unbelievable, right? Right, nobody can write a new UI for your Facebook data, right? And the, and if, that's, if that data is on your computer, yes, you can replace that app and you should replace that app and it can be made very easy to replace that app. Um, and certainly that's kind of part of Urbit's, you know, technical design is to really avoid that kind of lock-in at kind of every, at every level. And so, um, like in a way the the proposition is basically, well, we don't, in a way we don't really know what's possible or really what we want because the people, the sort of, or the, the, the sort of institutions that, um, that have grown up to kind of control this space are, it's actually incredibly difficult to attack them um, or to or to do better. Um, yeah, I'm sure actually, you guys have heard of Power Ventures. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so very interesting, interesting conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know, that could come out of that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we can have that sooner or, or later. But yes, very, very, very interesting. Well, story. Uh, okay. So, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Galen, but just for yeah, listeners, yeah. listeners who don't know, Power Ventures is this thing where this guy was making a feed to unify all your different social networks, Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, and Facebook made him shut down, and he's been fighting Facebook ever since then. He hired a lawyer on 
Upwork, I think. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's still fighting this case. <laughs> that and I mean, we, and I mean yeah, we, you hired a lawyer on Upwork and you wound up being personally liable, I believe, which is uh, quite incredible. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, no, there's a great Planet Money episode about it. But I think what's, you know, we can laugh about this, but it's actually, it's, it's, this is kind of gets at the heart of why Urbit could be valuable because if you rebuild a system in a way that Facebook can't can't legally just you know throw a lawsuit at you and and prevent you from making a better Facebook with the same kinds of things that Facebook has as a bootstrap then that's really valuable for users. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. you know, Facebook, um, I mean, you know, like uh Wait, wait. I, so let me just <laughs> jump in really sure. quickly. So basically, right. So We've always thought, I think, and, and so there are plenty of projects who've tried to solve this problem. Um, and the, and I think in most cases, they basically have to start from scratch. Like if you're building a new social network, you just assume, okay, you know what? We're going to have to get people to kind of move to this world wholesale. They're going to have to leave everything behind. And I think that one of the sort of really exciting things about Urbit as it starts to become um, sort of mature enough to actually take this on is that, yeah, I mean, you're just running a server on the web. I mean, you could, it can do whatever you want. If you want it to go and scrape Facebook for you, then that's completely fine. I mean, that's not a problem. You, you, you program this thing, you control it. It's, it's really not up to us what you do with it. So the prospect of actually just sort of layering over um, all of these services is fantastic to me. I mean, that's 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 really what sort of gets me excited about working on this, right? Is that you'd actually have the potential to sort of mi- to migrate without losing anything, um, which I think is is really really great. Um, and it's actually, I think, historically also not not the way that that has happened. When you have um, sort of technical innovations where you're going to, you know, people are kind of moving into some new paradigm. And but I think it would it, it it's fitting for the era that we're in because the cost of moving is really important to the success of these kinds of projects. Sure, sure. And and when you you sort of compare. Uh, you know, Urbit to you know Power Ventures. Like there's a, um, you know, like a, in a way, basically, like in if you're actually like the problem. I mean, there were many problems with the whole you know Power Ventures thing, but like you know the real fundamental problem is that um, you know it's very easy for Facebook in practice to sue because it you know it's kind of this smelly little scam, and it sort of feels and smells like this smelly little scam. <laughs> it's just and, the, the and, simple fact is just that there's one person running the servers. It's, sure, just, and and I mean, and and, and, and so in a way, it's it's like the um, you know if you're it's for example, it's certainly true that um, a lot of the original um, momentum behind the VCR came out of basically um, you know people copying movies and such, which Hollywood really didn't like. And so if you'd set up a business that say, okay, I'm going to set up a business to help you copy your movies, um, you know, that's a business whose sort of purpose is basically to break the law and Hollywood is not going to have a whole lot of trouble suing that. If you're like, no, I'm going to create a new technology for playing back video. Um, and it so happens that if you can play back video, you can copy it. Um, Hollywood is going to have some difficulty in shutting that down. Um, <laughs> And because, you know, it's sort of so blatantly anti-technical in a way. And, you know, what what's happened with kind of all these giant silos, I mean, to sort of bring the conversation back in, in a technical direction in a way, what's happened with all these giant silos is that they exist because of sort of one very simple fact, which is that it's not really practical for you to run your own node on the Internet and to basically control your own sort of computing and to be kind of a digital citizen in a way. And because it's not practical to be a digital citizen, basically you kind of, you're you're sort of like a citizen of Rome at the end of the fall, around the fall of the Roman empire. You're like, okay, 
Um, I can't protect myself. Who can protect me? I know, you know, King Zuckerberg of the of the Visigoths can protect me. And so basically you go and you find yourself in this kind of new system of, of feudalism and it's not super perfect, right? You know, but on the other hand, you can tend your crops and uh, the Huns don't get you. And so it's like when you're like, okay, we're going to, you know, sort of work very hard to kind of create a world in which we think people can be digital citizens. And then the result of creating that world is that basically people who are digital serfs are going to be like, hey, I could free to the, flee to the city and become free. And, you know, um, that's that's like a, a, you know, that's a, uh, you know, that's sort of a way of you can think of it as a way of attacking Facebook if you like. But I think that it's a way that's sort of it's sort of appropriate to the scale of the thing that you're attacking, because Facebook is this immense achievement. It's this it's an amazing, you know, work. I mean, it's a great kingdom, you know, like I have utmost admiration for sort of the things that they they've done there. And, you know, like. Uh, will the kingdom, this kingdom last forever? I don't think so. Is it going to be taken out, taken down by, you know, a bunch of like, you know, scammers in Orange County or wherever? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, and so it's like you have to have that level of ambition, basically. Well, I mean, I think you're getting at the some of your uh, philosophies around competition versus like going around and just making something different and perhaps better. Um yeah, the, I mean, the underlying ambition is definitely like to create a new world, right? Sure. And, um, but you want to do it in such a way that it is, in fact, so filled with sort of new and different opportunity that that's what causes it to win. Sure. And and the thing is, when it comes to basically APIs, I mean, um, there's, of course, you know, the number of web APIs is going up, you know, pretty much exponentially at the moment. And, um, you know, one way to think about kind of the nature of what a computer is, one way to define like the form factor of a computer is to say, what IO can this computer perform? So if you're talking about a mainframe, its IO model is it drives dumb terminals. If you're talking about a PC, it drives a keyboard and a screen. If you're talking about a personal server in today's world, um, you have to realize that its sort of main form of IO, besides the sort of web interface by which it talks to the client, is web APIs. And so basically, it needs to become natively very, very good at that. And so um, you basically, when you're thinking about talking to an API from Urbit, you sort of think of it, you know, as almost like a device driver in a way. It's like, you know, yeah, this is an IO channel. And to keep that IO channel working, you need an API key, you need updates of your API adapters. Um, you basically, and to have a system that you can program that can basically drive all of these, you know, IO channels, which is nonetheless sort of a full-fledged, you know, programmable, stateful computer, is really something that, you know, kind of nobody has the opportunity to play around with now. I mean, you have, you know, services like If This Then That, which kind of approach that, but they're sort of at a very, very toy kind of level. Um, but I think they really show the potential of what can be done basically with a personal server that's kind of built to drive these APIs. So the personal server is this system where you've got all the things that you want, all the information you want in, in your own personal server, and you've also got the API integrations as first-class citizens to these different web things that you want. You've got a first-class citizen API access to Gmail, one to Facebook, and 
one to Dropbox, all these other things, so that it, so that you get the benefits of the present ecosystem, but you get more centralization, more control. So I think at this point, people are probably convinced, okay, this makes sense in some sense. We know why we want to boil the ocean. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about how we're going to boil the ocean. Urbit is a clean slate software system defined as a deterministic computer this sounds like something that would be trending on hacker news where somebody's written up a spec and they have no idea how to actually implement it but there is github code of <laughs> urbit it actually I, runs you can go to urbit.org slash stream and you can see people chatting over urbit right so, um, it is a thing so urbit is a one function computer let's start there what does that mean uh what does that mean um so uh it's really actually um um very simple. It means that um, your state at any time is a function of your input history. So um, a simple way for, for your technically oriented listeners, who I, I hope are most of your listeners, is, um, you know, if you imagine you're defining, uh, you know, computing from scratch, let's look at a computer. Well, I have a computer right in front of me. Um, it has all these different uh, ports and things on it. It has a number of ways of doing uh, this thing called I.O., um, and, uh, you know, if you're a sort of enlightened, you know, citizen of the 21st century, you might say, well, IO, why do we need IO? Um, couldn't everything just be a network? Um, and there's actually a very sort of important categorical difference between an IO bus and a network, which is in a, net a network can drop packets and IO cannot drop packets. Um, and if you were actually redesigning the hardware from the scratch, let's say you're not just boiling the ocean, you're also burning the land or something, which we're not doing. Uh, if you actually got to redesign hardware from scratch, you might well say, well, I have all these cables, all these wires, all these things coming out of my CPU. Um, let's just make them all ethernet. You know, why isn't my monitor cable an ethernet cable? Why am I not just sending packets to my monitor? Well, you know, probably you could do that. There's maybe a little bit more overhead, whatever. It's fine. We have the protocols we have now. But if you're defining, defining computing abstractly, you're like, yes, what is a computer? Uh, then you have this other sort of complexification, which again comes out of hardware things from um, really the 60s, which is that you have persistent storage and transient storage. So you're like, okay, my computer has a hard disk, which is slow, but lives forever and has memory, which is fast, but, um, you know, uh, dies when you turn the power off. Um, HP for a long time, our HP is still working on these things called memristors, which are like, you know, sort of a single level storage, uh, you know, technology that's like as fast as DRAM and as big as a hard disk and will be ready next year um, or something like that. Um, you know, but then they're like, okay, what do we run if we have this flat storage system? Well, let's let's run Linux because what else would we run? So if you basically take those two abstractions away and you're like, okay, I'm going to imagine I have a computer. It has some state. It has packets in and packets out, and that's all it does. And the state is permanent. It's a single level store. Then uh, you've simplified the problem a great deal. And you're like, okay, how do I define this computer? Well. What you'd really like is basically for the semantics of your computer to be entirely frozen so that there's no sort of uh, out of band update process, nobody coming in, slipping in a new disk or whatever. Um, you really want all of the semantics of the, com of the computer to be delivered and completely updatable over the network. So that's a, you know, sort of slightly tricky problem. Uh, and, but really what you want is to basically say, get the semantics out of this sort of predefined blob of this definition and get it into something that comes in over this network stream. And then you can basically say, okay, 
um, if I include sort of installing and reinstalling the OS, hopefully from source code, as basically part of this stream of packets that I receive, if I also include basically getting the secrets that enables me to decode, you know, the packets, then I can basically say, okay, I'm going to define this whole computer as basically just literally my state is a function of the list of packets that I've received. Um, and you want that function to be as, as simple as possible. And so I was like, yeah, let's get it to fit on a T-shirt. So I got it to fit on a, on a T-shirt. We should probably be selling those T-shirts. Um, they're pretty cool. Galen designed them. They're pretty cool T-shirts. Um, and um, They're just the spec. They're just the spec. <laughs> um, and um, um, so, yeah, you can actually make this fit on a T-shirt. And then you're like, okay, you know, so in practice, basically, um, how do you do this? Well, you know, the um the the sort of fundamental interpreter uh which is called knock which runs this you can sort of think of knock as a very very simple lisp if you can imagine lisp that's so simple it doesn't even use the lambda calculus um and then you're like okay this very very simple lisp you know which is too simple even to program and it doesn't even have a syntax um that's sort of the uh functional assembly language that's the um you know, that, that's the, the assembly language of this uh, abstract VM. Then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to ship higher um, level programming language that compiles itself to this VM. And then I'm going to write an operating system in this language. And I'm basically going to ship all that stuff in the first few packets to this system. And then basically you have a boot sequence, which is what is needed. Um, you also, to have this sort of be more, you know, like, I mean, this is sort of a nice kind of academic achievement in a way, but that's not really sort of very interesting. Um, you also need all those things to be able to upgrade themselves. So, you know, it's like you, you can't say, well, it's a lifecycle function. You can, you know, um, but we actually install the OS in the first five packets and then it's it's permanent. Um, you have to basically be able to upgrade anything that you've installed in that process. Um, and so that's basically what gets you to this sort of, you know, kind of slightly... Uh, magical otherworldly experience of this um, this life cycle function. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty unusual. Um, did that answer some of the question? I mean, every with Urbit, every answer is three more questions to ask. Uh, <laughs> sure. So there's a virtual there's a virtual machine called Knock. There's a programming language called Hoon. There's an operating system called Arvo. These are some of the core components. Uh, you've You've explained some of them in detail, kind of glossing over them. Can you just explain a little bit more how they fit together, why these are three core components that if somebody wants to come at Urbit and sort of understand what Urbit is trying to do, explain like how these three things fit together and how they're fundamental to understanding how Urbit works. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I think a good, you know, not everybody knows Lisp, but um, sort of a, a good one way to sort of answer this Everybody question. listening, I think, knows what Lisp is. Everybody knows what Lisp is. I don't actually know. I've never actually programmed in Lisp. I just know Lisp. Uh, you know, um, um, so the thing is that in a way, you know, the, sort of the closest reference point in some ways is kind of the old dream of the Lisp machine, uh, which created this great alternate reality that eventually kind of died on the vine, but still was in many ways, I mean, you know, the Symbolics universe of the 80s was in many ways superior to the Unix experience. Uh, and so it's sort of important. I mean, it wasn't networked. It had all, you know, a lot of problems, but um, it was very fine and very cool and very good. And if you sort of look at why, at the reasons why, at the technical reasons um, why that didn't sort of take off or didn't achieve its, its promise, 
Um, I think when you look at Lisp, one of the things that you notice sort of very quickly is that there's this kind of um, sort of interesting game that sort of Lisp has to play with you, where it's like, okay, Lisp is conceptually very simple. Actually, they, I don't think the Lambda Calculus is, is that simple, um, but uh, certainly if you go to the Wikipedia page for the Lambda Calculus, it's pretty long. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty simple sort of logical system that actually sort of predates computing itself. It was originally a kind of mathematical system, um, and it's reasonably simple. And then if you look at like a real Lisp, like, um, you know, Common Lisp or Racket or whatever, um, basically what they've done is they've taken this very simple core and they've extended it. They've grown a lot of hair on it. So it's like, yes, you know, conceptually, Haskell and Racket and Common Lisp are all based on the Lambda calculus at a certain level. That doesn't make them actually compatible with each other in any way, shape, or form, right? And so the thing is that, you know, basically I'm coming at this problem. My background is, is, is I'm an OS guy. I studied, you know, a long time ago, I was a grad student in OS at Berkeley. And then I was like, screw this, I'll go get a real job. But I still think as an OS guy. And so the thing that sort of bothers me when I look at these old Lisp systems is that don't see any layers. Um, and layers are just, you know, the lifeblood of any kind of system software. And so basically, if you can take that, that simple core layer, make it sort of considerably um, simpler. Um, and if you sort of look at the, the um, kind of the delta from a very simple Lisp to knock, really the main thing that I've done is I've basically taken name resolution out of that VM kernel and I've kicked it up into user space where it belongs. Um, and so the concept of a function, the concept of a symbol, the concept of an environment or a symbol table, these things don't exist at all in knock. Um, they get solved at the actual sort of you know, programming language level, which is Hoon. So basically, um, what enables Urbit to, I mean, and what enables, and we use this constantly because we are, we, we have a live network and we frequently upgrade the OS and even the language over the network, um, is the fact that you have this sort of constant core, which, uh, you know, I made, um, knock, uh, you know, runs on this thing called, um, I had this idea called, which I call Kelvin versioning, which is basically diversion something rather than counting up in like like semantic versioning or whatever, you count down because your goal is to hit absolute zero, uh, after which the thing is frozen and can never be changed. And if you count down by integers, um, you're really giving yourself a, an interesting job to solve because you can't run out of numbers, right? So um, knock right now is at five Kelvin, which is the uh, the temperature of liquid helium. Um, you know, I made a cosmetic change to it in uh, 2013, um, but it's really it's frozen. Like you could, I can't imagine that actually changing. Uh, although even though I've got no you know four more degrees to play with, um, and so the thing is that if you freeze this kind of bottom layer, which is so. Um, so semantically simple, it's only, um, you know, integer operation is uh, increment, uh, even decrementing is in user space, basically in knock, um, which is why it fits on a page. Then you're sort of sort of well prepared to basically go up another level and kind of build the right um, functional language. Um, so um, clearly, you know, this is a system based on a lifecycle function. It's clearly, a, you know, a highly functional system. So we step up another level to, uh, to Hoon, um, and I'm like, okay, um, I, again, I'm an OS guy. I'm not a languages guy. I've never taken a PL theory class. Uh, I don't know category theory. Um, and uh, what I observe in the world of functional languages is basically um, here's this technology with a lot of promise. 
because you know one thing that functional language people that type functional language people really hardcore like Lisp is kind of like a softcore functional language like a real hardcore functional language like Haskell or OCaml um, although OCaml has some imperative components but let's take Haskell as an example people will tell you basically and this is true that when a um, typed Haskell program um, compiles um, it is uh, very likely to work the first time. And you're just like, you know, coming this from the world of, you know, C++ or whatever, you're like, wow, that is a fairly impressive claim. Um, and I've, I've experienced that myself with Hoon, which is, it's sort of very true that you get that benefit. At the same time, when with a traditional um, type functional language like Haskell, um, you have this sort of horrible problem, which is that the language is basically developed by mathematicians. Um, and mathematicians are these sort of very special breed of people that are very good at manipulating abstractions in their head. And so when they go to teach you Haskell, they basically give you one of two alternatives. Alternative number one is that you actually learn the math and learn to do the category theory and learn this basically system of notation that isn't really even terribly relevant to most programmers today. Um, and also basically requires you to be someone who's just physiologically capable of getting a um, you know, a math degree from a, from an upper from a good quality school. That's basically what you have to the sort of mental toolbox you need in order to learn Haskell. Then there's this other to to learn it properly. Then there's this other way of learning Haskell, which is like the learn you a Haskell way of doing it, where it's like forget about it. The type system is a black box. You don't understand. Just type the little symbols, and it'll come out you know the way you want. And um, some programmers can can do okay with that, but that's also something I think that's very uncomfortable for a lot of programmers. Sort of thinking of this you know, this sort of black box underneath what you're doing. And um, I think that that combination has really limited the penetration of functional programming quite a great deal. And so kind of my ambition in building Kuhn was to build a language that was kind of sort of the functional equivalent of C in a way. So, um, you know, C had this, you probably remember uh, Pascal. Um, C had sure, this yeah. competitor, Pascal, which was very sort of European style system that like it's like okay here's sort of the formally what you're doing when you program um, but let's look sort of you know um, and let's hide all these ugly you know assembly language things that are going on under you and C made the opposite decision it said no C is going to be basically a macro assembler it's going to be something that's so um, um, you know just a sort of very thin layer over what's going on under it. And yet it's going to give you the same affordances uh, as Pascal. And so when I look at Kuhn, um, basically, I think sort of the most, the thing that I'm kind of happiest with in a way is that, um, you know, the compiler for Hoon is, of course, written in Hoon because, you know, everything has to run inside Urbit, right? Um, and when you look at the transformation between the Hoon abstract syntax tree and Knock, uh, the whole sort of language semantics is um, basically 2,000 lines of code. And there's there's really no runtime system worth speaking of. So there's nothing like the transformation from Hoon to Knock is extremely simple. It is a type functional language. It makes no reference to category theory of any kind. Um, and so despite the fact that it's sort of relatively alien to most people, first being a functional language, second being kind of an alien kind of functional language, um, the simplicity there, I would say, is much higher. So that's kind of basically the um, the deal with Hoon. Um, uh, should I move on to Arvo, or uh, you know, is well, that, uh, so 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 just to uh, just to interject, give people some context. So 
I think we could go really deep on all areas of the engineering, and I think that would be much more than um, a single show. Yes. <laughs> uh, if people are curious, I mean, you've got so the you know this is a giant operating system and uh, programming, a functional programming language at the lowest level, and then uh, you know you've got this event-driven uh, architecture. Um, so pe- people who are who are interested in the engineering should go and check it out. Um, but let's quite, talk a little bit about the. Um, come chat with us. Yes. Like if you, if yes. you have questions, just come hop on. You can do it just via the web. Right? Yeah, you can go into urbit.org slash stream and just, uh, you know, talk to us over Urbit. Yeah, so, so I mean, um, beyond the way that the OS itself is built and the different components that underlie the OS, the virtual machine and the operating system itself, what is the developer experience? Like, I can install Urbit on top of Mac OS or any other Unix-based system. Once I install it, I've got this file system, which uh, is an append-only log and a checkpoint. Maybe you can explain what that is. But wh- explain what the developer experience is like. After I install Urbit, what do I do with this? Do I run a web application? Do I build something? Do I just hang out in the file system? Do I message people? That's a great. That's a great question. And you know, to be honest uh you know one of the reasons why we're uh, we're relatively timid about um Urbit's really good at um at really one one thing which is uh letting you play with Urbit. yes uh, um um let me let me so there's there's sort of two senses in which uh you know i can answer that question you know one one question is what is the developer experience like now and what is the developer experience designed to be uh so the developer experience now is basically you know i i sort of you know like there's a sort of desire to basically, uh, you know, evangelize the system, which is what I'm doing now. And then there's this desire to say, hey, you know, this is a fairly rocky uh, experience. Um, come if you want to play with Urbit and you think this stuff is cool. Um, but, you know, when I actually want people who sort of don't care about the technology to start using it or start, uh, you know, developing on it, uh, you know, it's like, I'll definitely let you know. Um, and and so the... So, de- wait, so the, yeah. the short answer is really that, yeah, you can, you can boot this thing. Um, we have, you know, their sort of introductory tutorials for learning Hoon and getting the sense of how the system works and little examples and stuff. Um, but the truth is that, yeah, any the the real sort of development work to be done here is really on Urbit itself, getting Urbit to be more stable, more mature. So the people that I think really stick around and hang out, because there is a kind of community element, right? I mean, most of what Urbit is good for is also sort of chatting and, and sharing your code and so on and so forth. Um, so it's like if you're if you're if you believe that you know it's possible to sort of reinvent this whole world from from scratch, um, then you know you're more than more than welcome to come and and talk to us about how that might be done and what and what sort of needs to be worked on and the materials to figure out how to um, you know productively actually contribute and program and so on do exist, but it's still Urbit is still very very young and it's a yeah it's a it's a challenging it's a challenging right. experience. So 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 day. so yeah, I mean that's that's sort of obvious. Let me jump up on a level and talk about what sort of the development experience should be like and why this basically you know where this system is going and why it should sort of um, be in a way. I mean you have to tie everything back in a sense to the fact that if running a personal server was just a matter of getting a digital ocean droplet and um you know i mean in theory a digital ocean droplet can do everything that dropbox and facebook and all these things you know are doing in practice it can't and um sort of understanding that difference i think sort of um and then 
connecting that directly to sort of what the developer experiences, uh, you know, is going to become is sort of the right. It's it's in a way kind of you know the most critical question you're you're going to ask here. So let me try and kind of answer that question in terms of where we're going. One of the things about building um, server side software in Linux is that the operating system solves very few problems for you. So you're not just building an app on Linux, you're building a stack, it's a LAMP stack, it's a this stack, a node stack, whatever you've got. You've got a lot of components that need to be wired together to sort of form very, very basic um, services. And even just sort of collecting that stack is, is this kind of matter of sort of this ridiculous carpentry that you go through. Um, and that in some ways is, I think, one of the factors that sort of does the most to kind of hold back you know, or sort of make it impossible to use Linux as a um, as a personal server. It's like people have come up with, you know, um, um, you know, you can use Puppet and Chef to install. Somebody has like a set of 30 packages you can install to create a personal server with, you know, app get install or whatever. Um, and <laughs> I mean, it's kind of it's it's a it's an amazing effort, but it kind of proves the point. And one of the points about one of the things that sort of makes being a Linux system administrator so hard is basically the fact that every application that you're you're building kind of has to solve all these problems on its own. And so there's this sort of giant, you know, between the OS proper, between the kernel and your app, there's this kind of giant pile of software. So when you compare that to Urbit, I think the, the thing that basically jumps out at you is that... Um, in Urbit, you're kind of solving all those problems. You're actually kicking those problems to the OS layer. And so when, when I write a server in Urbit, here are you know some problems that I don't have to worry about. So in Urbit, number one, Urbit is a single level store. So I don't have to basically say, um, okay, here are my data structures. Now here's how I flush them to the DB. Here's how I maintain them in the DB, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, you can save them. Urbit has a revision control system. It's actually a type revision control system that you can you know, sort of push your stuff out to if you want other people to be able to see them. But just keep your data structures because this is a single level store. There's no sort of separate, oh, here's how I move my stat stuff to the database. Um, you get a message from the network. That message is encrypted. It has an identity. That identity is from a limited space. So you don't have sort of infinite. Um, um, ideally, the network basically sort of always stays kind of high quality just because you don't have the sort of problem of infinite numbers of identities, which is what creates um, spam. Um, but if you need to do a reputation query on that identity, that'll be easy. Um, when you're handling a network operation, um, uh, let's see, every, um, every message is a transaction. That's uh, you know kind of fairly nice, basically. So you're writing actually it's kind of a transactional service. So this sort of whole complex of app server database basically kind of turns into um, one thing. Um, and so uh, then let's say you want to use a web API. Well, um, you know the service of using web APIs is basically curated by the OS. So rather than saying, oh, I want to use a web API, I need to get an application key for it. I need to manage this, you know, gateway to the service. What do I do if the service API breaks? Um, instead, you're in a world where, um, number one, your user can be told basically how to go out and get this key, um, which is basically 
kind of sort of connecting his computer to Dropbox to whatever, whatever. Um, you know, usually this is a very simple process. Um, the um, if the driver is to connect you to the Dropbox API change, that's going to be auto updated basically over the air with your OS. You don't have to worry about that. That's like getting your device drivers updated in you know Windows. Um, and so really what we're trying to do is basically create a world where the programmer is just doing the application logic and not all this sort of ridiculous um, um, kind of, I mean, systems programming really that you're doing when you build just a regular app, you know, server web application in today's framework. I kind of want to like take another step back and talk about this project in a more macro sense because people could look at this project as a very long-term practical project. People could look at it as a thought experiment, but one way or another, it is a project that that people are putting real work into. It has legs, and it is something that is outside of the realm of what most people will consider a like a normal software engineering project. And what I find interesting about Urbit and also like just reading about some of your philosophies and some of your your background and also uh, tied in with the fact I moved to San Francisco recently and kind of what I was expecting from San Francisco what I was really yearning for moving here was like um, like an open-mindedness and there is a lot of open-mindedness you find people with very extreme and interesting views um, but there is also like a, a, a type of conservatism masquerading as open-mindedness and um in in some places maybe that's that's uh that's warranted it's it's a good thing but in other places i find it to be uh hard to deal with and almost like a little bit disappointing because i expected this to be the, the san francisco to be this place of like free thought and everything and uh i see some of the things that uh, you know, you, you the controversies that you get caught up in as as really uh, an an embodiment of that. And so, I'm just curious, as somebody who's leading a big project, how do you trade off between saying things that you believe that make people feel uncomfortable and restricting your speech so that you can be diplomatic and you can get things done more effectively? That's a, and, and I mean, that's actually several questions. Um, but let me sort of answer the, you know, the last one um, um, first is that, um, you know, I have a very uh, simple rule on, on, uh, you know, really Urbit is just one main, uh, as a discussion group is one main discussion group. And uh, my simple and, you know, explicitly stated uh, rule for um, or Urbit is that uh, all all discourse on Urbit Meta, which is our, our main discussion channel, uh, must be politically correct. Um, and um, that's something that that's a word that's sort of seldom used by those who are enforcing it. And so by enforcing it in that sense, you're kind of making a point that um, this should be sort of orthogonal to um, your sort of belief systems in a way. I mean, it's like when I look at... Um, I think that there's a number of different ways in which I could take what you just said. And one of the sort of the interesting points, when when I look at just, you know, especially even 
sort of just in kind of the technical appeal, but I think in, there's also definitely a kind of broader, I mean, you're creating a network, like you, you sort of, you inevitably have kind of a vision of the future that's, that's implied there. One of the things I find is that sort of, there's an interesting pattern in the age range of people that are attracted to, um, Urbit and there's kind of a donut hole in a way is that really the people that are most interested in this are either under 25 or over 40. Um, and the people who are over 40 sort of remember the original kind of vision of the uh, the internet dream of like a peer-to-peer network and they're like yeah we could actually do that this time and the people who are under 25 are like yeah wouldn't it be nice if I had an ecosystem that was actually invented in my own lifetime um, but I think and, there's also your you actually Jeff you, you put it really well like I think that there is um, there is such a I think, in a way, Urbit is has this kind of. I think, as a community, um, is a collection of people who hold this a similar sort of utopian idea of both, like, sort of freedom of speech and freedom of thought uh, that that you do. That it's possible to um, basically, you know, be polite and be respectful and um, uh, and without and and without without like um, sort of being. Uh, uh, seeing the discourse kind of devolve, um, that, that it's possible for like, uh, that, I mean, I think there, that it's funny that the ideal of San Francisco that you describe is one that I, I totally relate to. I kind of grew up around here, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, and, and it's, and I think the, um, you know, co- controversy, uh, is <laughs> we live in the age of, we live in the age of, of sort of extreme controversy, right. Um, and sort of controversy as a tool. And, and I, I think the hope as it from a, from a sort of community standpoint is really that like, um, you know, when you actually engage with, you know, real humans who sort of have real actual network addresses that they're responsible for, um, that people are actually incredibly civil to each other. And that, and that kind of like, um, individual discourse is really, is really important. It's really powerful. And, and it's still possible potentially. And, and it's, and it's possible to create kind of a sort of polycentric world order in a sense, like you can create, um, um, I mean, you know, like, if you replace you, 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 there's definitely a sense um, that you have, or that I have, that's sort of this kind of world of the modern computers and these kind of big digital monopolies kind of um, really easily reinforces these kinds of political monocultures and these monocultures of, of perception. And so there's a way in which these things sort of go together, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to basically, you know, someone who's say 28, 30 or whatever, they've sort of grown up in the world of these giant silos, these world of these Facebooks. And if you're technically good, basically those companies generate a lot of money. And so they, they employ a lot of really talented sort of excellent people. They do a really good job of the things they do. Um, And so you're basically looking at these people that are sort of very kind of satisfied with the status quo. And that's why I think you use the word conservatism in a way. It's like, basically, their lifestyle works for them, their, you know, their job works for them. Um, The whole sort of way in which the world is organized around these, these services um, works for them, despite its sort of obvious incipient kind of totalitarianism. <laughs> and I think that you'll see as those people, you know, who are, you know, 30 become 40 and 50. And if nothing changes, I think you'll see that incipient totalitarianism become much less incipient um, in a way. And so but in a way is not I mean, I think 
it's I think always there's like continuously in this kind of realm of, of basically of like Federalist 10 that basically you want there to be lots of competing factions of ideas that like a really healthy society has people of very of, of um, you know uh, vastly different opinions um, who are allowed to sort of congregate and uh, form groups that are separate from one another but that also sort of overlap in some kind of public sphere. And, and, if, and if those groups are filtered, they should be filtering themselves for quality. They shouldn't be basically having well, ideological wars over who gets to filter who. That's something that's yeah, really, so, right, really so, important right. to so us. So this default, the, the, to me, the, 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 the fundamental sort of rebuke or something is basically that what right now we have this very strange world on the internet of a kind of default public um, broadcast communication or completely private one-on-one email. And it's just a very strange thing that doesn't seem conducive to this sort of, um, yeah, sort of polycentric um, society that we, we think of, that, that we actually still have for the most part in the real world. It just really does not reflect. And, and, and I personally, not Galen because he's too young, but I personally remember when we had Usenet, you know, which was really a thing, you know, um, 30 years ago and seemed like it was going to turn into that kind of sort of global civilization in a way. And then it just, you know, it failed to, you know, perform the essential function of uh, keeping the barbarians out of the city walls. And um, so, you know, in a way it's like, I'm like, yes, you know, we can, we can do this it's dream. It's much more complicated than that. Actually, it's, but... it's much more complicated than that, but uh, that's a good way to, to summarize but it. But that probably gives you some sense of maybe. Yeah, I, I think our feelings on this are very, very similar. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, Thank you guys for coming on, talking about Urbit and techno-political philosophy. Uh, I think Urbit's a really valuable project. At first, I thought it was uh, totally crazy, and then the more I looked into it, the more I had to take it seriously. It just totally reminded me of, you know, looking into, you know, projects like Bitcoin or Ethereum or these other things where they seem like toys at first, and then you look more closely, and you're like, oh, okay, this is something I have to take seriously. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's got to be. Thank you, guys. The thing is that you've, you've got to have that sort of big vision, and then that's got to be tempered by just kind of realism at every level. And that's the way you create yeah. something that actually matters. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you for coming on. All right. Yeah. All right. Take care, Jeff. Wow.